The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Hill Arkett. In today's interview, we talked about Hill's new book, Friends of Israel, The Backlash Against Palestine Solidarity, the first book-length treatment of the pro-Israel lobby in Britain. We talked about the strategies that Israel and pro-Israel organisations in Britain have adopted to deflect criticism of the ongoing occupation and the dispossession of the Palestinian people and their efforts to undermine the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign. Hill explained why they characterise contemporary Zionism as a social movement from above, and how apartheid-era South Africa was a forerunner for some of the public relations techniques adopted by Israel and its outriders. We also talked about John Mearsheimer and Stephen Waltz's 2007 book, The Israel Lobby and US Foreign Policy, and where Hill's analysis differs from theirs. We also discussed the pitfalls of writing on this topic at a time of increasing anti-Semitism around the world. And finally, we talked about why parliamentary support for Israel was once stronger within the Labour Party than the Conservatives, and what the role of the Labour and Conservative Friends of Israel groups is today. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is Troublemaking, Why You Should Organise Your Workplace by Lydia Hughes and Jamie Woodcock. The labour movement has seen a wave of dynamism in recent years, with an explosion of organising among workers many assumed could not be organised, from delivery drivers in London to tech workers in Silicon Valley. In their new book, Lydia Hughes and Jamie Woodcock draw a number of lessons about why organising at work is the first step in building another world. John McDonnell describes the book as not only inspiring workers to organise, but also as explaining concisely how our economic system operates and how it can be challenged successfully. Troublemaking, Why You Should Organise Your Workplace by Lydia Hughes and Jamie Woodcock, is out now from Verso Books and up to 50% off when you buy direct from Verso's website as part of their Red May sale. And now to today's interview. Hill Arkhead is a writer, investigative researcher and activist with a background in political sociology, whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The Independent, Sky News and Al Jazeera, as well as volumes from Pluto Press and Bloomsbury. Friends of Israel, The Backlash Against Palestine Solidarity is their first book. If you'd like to hear the extended 80-minute version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. You note in the introduction to the book that this is the first study of its kind of the pro-Israel lobby in the UK, and you write that, as Palestinian-American scholar Edward Said and others have noted, the topic of the Israel lobby is significantly taboo. This is in part the result of a deliberate effort by pro-Israel actors themselves to resist 
and indeed stigmatise critical scrutiny. But the existence of very real racist fantasies about Jewish power must also be acknowledged. In combination, these two factors have helped to create a situation in which virtually any critique of the Zionist movement is liable to be interpreted or disingenuously represented as anti-Semitic. This serves to deter almost all scholarly examinations of Zionism in Britain, and the topic has come to be regarded as largely off-limits. And you then go on to ask whether it is possible to write about the lobby without, as you put it, overstating its power and critically without ethnicizing the issue. Is it possible to write an anti-racist book about the pro-Israel lobby? I hope to show that it is. So before we talk about how you conceptualize the lobby and your understanding of how its various elements operate, can you talk a bit about the pitfalls that writing on this topic involves, pitfalls which have perhaps always been there, but that in the context of increasing anti-Semitism around the world and the explosion of conspiracy theorizing that social media has fostered need to be navigated with particular care? This is the first book of its kind that like takes an all-encompassing look at the, the Israel lobby or the Zionist movement in the UK, and in particular its response to BDS. And it is quite remarkable given the amount of real-world activity that's going on. And and one other thing I didn't that I quote didn't mention is just the practicalities of researching this topic. A, a quite difficult way. It's quite opaque, um, like you know, a lot of lobbying and propaganda. But yeah, I mean, as you said, that there is also this taboo, right? And and part of that is. A disingenuous attempt by the Zionist movement to to label anyone who who tries to scrutinize the Zionist movement as anti-Semitic, but then there are also real and long-standing anti-Semitic fantasies about you know Jewish power and Jewish control of the media. Um, so one of the key things I hope the book helps to do is to give people the tools to to walk what can feel like a bit of a tightrope because you're fearful of rightly fearful of you know saying something anti-Semitic or which could feed an anti-Semitic trope, that causing a silence around calling out the actors who support Israeli apartheid in this country. So I, you know, spent a lot of time differentiating the Zionist movement from the Jewish community to de-ethnicise the issue. And, and that's just not like a sort of political correctness thing. That's an empirical reality. And um, But I also think, you know, that we've seen in recent weeks with... The Guardian recently published this cartoon about the BBC's Richard Sharp, and there's a squid in it. It sort of makes reference to Goldman Sachs banking. And it is, you know, remarkable, really, that a, a mainstream newspaper can publish a, a cartoon like that, apparently unaware of the, the real connotations, not just to Nazi propaganda, but to more recent anti-Semitic conspiracies like George Soros stuff. And so I think, you know, it, people do need to educate themselves and be aware of um you know the tropes and and be vigilant against them so that they can confidently and, and competently talk about the issue of pro-israel zionist movement activity without falling into those tropes um and yeah like in terms of assessing the the power of the zionist movement again like we shouldn't be straying into anti-semitic conspiracies once as long as we have like clearly delineated between the Zionist movement and the Jewish community. Um, but even if, even when we're talking about the Zionist movement, there is unfortunately a fair or some uh, material and discourse out there, which still, uh, I think, exaggerates its power. You know, some things go in the opposite direction, right? So um, when there's absence of proof 
of the Zionist movement's influence, that can be interpreted as proof of absence of influence, and that and, and that can understate its power, and that can happen when when things are happening behind closed doors. But equally, I think there's a temptation sometimes to assume that the pro-Israel actors must be having influence because Britain, British policy is is pro-Israel and the obvious injustice of that when we're supporting an apartheid state. But it's totally fallacious to attribute that simplistically to kind of pro-Israel lobbying when, you know, as, as the book talks about, as I'm sure we'll discuss, you know, Britain has a very long history of support for the Zionist project and many, many other reasons why um, why why Britain is allied to Israel. And and I think that like the mistake that some people fall into is trying to observe influence taking place, you know, at the top, you know, like as if MPs are being kind of uh, against their will, coerced nefariously into supporting Israel, where they'd otherwise be just and fair and pro-Palestinian. And and actually, that's not the case. You know, it's a really often a cooperative relationship at the top and a mutually beneficial arrangements between, you know, pro-Israel MPs and pro-Israel actors in civil society. But when we see the Zionist movement's power become visible, but also it's the limitations of its power, which are very real, is where we look at civil society contestation and the need to repress the the ascendant BDS movement. So the Zionist movement has had to mobilise to, to respond to that because it is its power is indeed limited and it is vulnerable. Support for Israel is vulnerable to erosion when faced by this kind of grassroots movement. You've already made use of the term the Zionist movement and, and the two terms that you focus on particularly are the Israel lobby and the Zionist movement. And regarding the latter, you write that the term Zionism is relevant and useful because it pinpoints the ideology underpinning the state of Israel's uh, apartheid practices. It also invites us to bear in mind the spectrum of political persuasions from liberal Zionism to revisionist Zionism contained therein. Um can you expand on that point a little bit and explain why it's useful from your point of view to deploy the term uh, Zionist movement as in addition to the Israel lobby? Yeah, sure. So I do use both terms, but I think Zionist movement is is a more accurate and, and useful term. Uh, you know, you've mentioned already that it, it highlights the ideology underpinning Israel's apartheid practices. And I think that, you know, there have been voices in Britain at the height of the Labour anti-Semitism affair that, that said, oh, we just need to stop talking about Zionism. And I definitely disagree with that. I think we need to uh, educate ourselves and understand what it is, what it has been, what it's meant for Palestinians and use it you know, responsibly and accurately. And to understand, yeah, the different the different strands of the movement from revisionist to liberal. And yeah, I think that helps us to appreciate that the Zionist movement and the Israel lobby is like very much a they and not an it. It's not a homogenous block these different strands they they disagree on a lot and there's internal contestation and conflict but where they cohere of course in on a basic level is this fundamental commitment to uh, the existence of a jewish state even if different uh, strands of the movement disagree on where the boundaries of that state should lie but yeah and it, what, what zionist movement also allows us to do is to uh, encompass groups which may sometimes criticize israel right so um i mentioned in passing because they're not a very significant group, uh, Yakad. And uh, it's a liberal Zionist group and liberal Zionism is a vanishingly small uh, trend both in Israel and in Britain. But they are nonetheless a, a Zionist group committed to supporting you know, the state of Israel as a Jewish state. That said, they also criticise Israel. Uh, a lot of they do sort of tours um, of the West Bank. They would speak out against the, the more right wing of the Zionist movement. Um, but they also you know, apply to affiliate to the Zionist Federation because they consider themselves and recognise themselves to be part of that broad Zionist church. And of course, 
then talking about the, the word movement um, is just a more accurate term than lobby because the, the Zionist movement engages in a much wider range of activities than the term lobbying suggests. So, you know, it's not just elite influencing activities. It's also making political donations, taking politicians and councillors and journalists on trips. It's also um, setting up uh, Israel studies chairs at British universities. Um, it's also engaging in litigation and the courts. Um, it's also like creating astroturf groups. So it's just a more encompassing term that's more accurately able to capture that, capture that wide range of activities. And also it, the term lobby usually suggests sort of domestic interest groups, right? Like the NRA, the National Rifle Association in the US. But the Zionist movement has always been transnational from its its foundations until today. And I think in addition, the Zionist movement refers to itself as the Zionist movement and has done from its earliest days. So it, it makes more sense to use that term. Um, and in terms of how we how we then define and understand it, I, I, I the, the definition I refer in the book is simply like groups and individuals who engage in organised activity in support of some brand of political Zionism. So there may be people um, who are sort of, you know, in theory, support the the idea of, a, of Zionism and the Zionist project, but aren't actively doing anything. So I wouldn't necessarily consider them an active element in the Zionist movements. But critically, really, it's about political activity and not ethno-religious identity. So obviously it's very important to distinguish that from uh, the Jewish community, and we can talk, for example, about the role of Christian Zionism as, a, as an increasingly important or as a long-standingly important element of the Zionist movement. Regarding the use of the term uh, Zionist movement, and you make a good case for why it should be used, but do you think part of the reason that people are somewhat reluctant to use it is that because of that emphasis on the transnational, which you talk about, and also perhaps the use of the term movement with its implication of being quite removed from state direction, that it can all too easily be interpreted in anti-Semitic terms. After all, one of the core tropes of anti-Semitism is the supposed cosmopolitan and transnational character of this uh, you know, imagined uh, Jewish conspiracy, when we are, of course, here talking about a project led primarily by a state and which is overwhelmingly in the interests of, of that state rather than being some more amorphous and an expansive project. Yeah, that potentially. I mean, I think that might be giving people a bit too much credit in some senses. I'm not sure that, yeah, there is that uh, level of awareness around that kind of the trope of the, the wandering Jew. I think people simply don't really understand much about Zionism, don't have that that historical understanding but at the same time yeah like israel lobby is you know gets to the point of what we're talking about which is um the actions of the israeli state today i mean peter beinhardt this uh whose trajectory is very interesting he was a sort of liberal zionist american and now he has pretty much sort of abandoned his zionism he says that you know zionism is what israel does today so in that sense i, I don't think it's uh, problematic to use Israel lobby as well. Of course, some people will say that they don't like the phrase Israel lobby because it sounds homogenizing and it sounds like there is one monolithic block. So there is no perfect term. And we can, I think as long as we're clear about what we're talking about, and what we're not talking about, when I use the phrase Zionist movement, usually I'm talking about, uh, well, in the, in the chapters of my book on the British Zionist movement, I'm talking about the British Zionist movement. It's very much part of um, British society. And obviously, yeah, there is a transnational element and, um, there are Zionist movements in the US, obviously, is extremely important, as well as obviously in, in Israel. Um, but I'm not referring to some kind of denaturalized um, anti Semitic conspiracy, although you're right, it's possible that someone could be. But I think we just need to 
define our terms clearly when we when we use them. Do you think perhaps a useful comparison might be with with India and the chauvinist anti-Muslim ideology of, of Hindutva and, and that we can speak of, um, just as we can speak of an Indian lobby and the movement of Hindutva, which goes beyond the activities of uh, the Indian state, we can also in that sense talk about the Israel lobby and the Zionist movement? Yeah, I think that is a, that is a really interesting and useful parallel. It's... Um, uh, Azadessa has a book about this actually and there are lots of parallels to be drawn between the ethno-nationalist politics of the Zionist movement and the Hindutva movement and to the extent that actually in Britain I think I mentioned this in the book the sort of Hindutva movement has tried to mimic the uh, Zionist movement in its activities in parliament and set up a group called Conservative Friends of India to do very much the same thing that Conservative Friends of Israel does so yeah I think that's that's a useful parallel and one that you know has some purchase yeah you've already mentioned the role of of christian zionists and, and you're keen in the book to emphasize that the the israel lobby or the, or, or the zionist movement should not be seen solely as a phenomenon of, of the jewish community and that indeed we can even think of anti-semitic politicians who have nonetheless aligned themselves with israel such as uh, victor orban and narendra modi uh, as constituting part of uh, of, of the, the pro-israel movement and regarding the christian zionists uh, and their support for israel now, that's an aspect of the lobby that's, that's better known regarding the United States with its very large evangelical population. But what about the Christian Zionists in the, in the UK and, and the role they play, which, which seems to be increasing as support for Israel amongst the Jewish diaspora declines? Yeah, so in Britain, I mean, Christian Zionism has always been extremely significant. Some of the British politicians who backed the creation of Israel, like in the in the early days of the Zionist movement, um, like Arthur Balfour, for example, were Christian Zionists. And more broadly speaking, Christian Zionism arguably predates the rise of support for Zionism within Jewish communities, which only happens uh, in earnest, really, in the 1930s and 40s, and quite understandably, because Jewish communities are facing persecution culminating in the Holocaust and and where there had not been a huge support for Zionism before, people kind of understandably think we need a we need a safe haven after all. So Christian Zionism specifically is a, a deeply conservative ideology that's rooted in in the Bible um, and it's infused itself with anti-Semitism. Okay? Essentially uh, one of its sort of key tenets is that um, the second coming of Christ will happen when all the Jews are gathered in the Holy Land. As you say, it's a very significant force and well known to be a significant force in the US. So um, John Hagee's um, Christians United for Israel claims to be the biggest grassroots pro-Israel network with over a million um, supporters. But in the UK, it's had a, a quiet but influential role. Um, so I think since at least the 1980s, Christian Friends of Israel has partnered with Zionist Federation to have an annual lobby of Parliament, of MPs in Parliament, where, by the way, you find kind of some influential Christian Zionists uh, within Parliament, notably uh, senior conservatives like Michael Gove. And yeah, as you as you said, you know, Christian Christian Zionists are increasingly actually the foot soldiers of pro-Israel activism at the grassroots in Britain today. So in the book, I mention an organisation called We Believe in Israel, which is a spin-off from a major pro-Israel lobby group called BICOM. And its job is to kind of support grassroots pro-Israel activism. It surveyed its own members in, I think, 2017, 2018, and it found that the majority were Christians and 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 much you know fewer from the Jewish community, right? So and the same goes for a lot of the hyper local kind of pro Israel groups that have sprung up in recent years. They are to the extent that they have a sort of 
active membership, a lot of that is evangelical Christian communities who are extremely right wing. And and that's uh, a lot of the time the people that the Israeli embassy in London is finding are its main allies as uh, I think we'll talk about this later, probably, but you know, as you, you alluded to, support in the Jewish community uh, for Zionist project and for Israeli apartheid uh, continues to drukish as it does in in wider society in Britain and elsewhere. Do you think that support from Christian Zionists could even have a, the sort of paradoxical effect of of further reducing support for Israel amongst the Jewish diaspora? Because secular Jewish people, why would they want to be associated with this sort of religious fundamentalism? Do, do you think that's a dynamic that that's occurring? Yes, I think it is. I think the fact that this is who the Israeli embassy turns to, to to fight its battles, you know, shows Israel's true face, really. And I think the younger Jewish communities have been asked to kind of check their liberalism at Zionism's door and instead are increasingly checking their, their Zionism. And I think part of that is, you know, this invitation essentially to participate in almost a clash of civilizations that says, yes, you know, we are the um, Judeo-Christian alliance of civilization and we're in some kind of, yeah, clash of civilizations with the Islamic world and, and that the war on terror narrative really that like Israel-Palestine kind of situation plays such a kind of central role in. And I don't think for anyone sort of liberal or left-leaning it's working. And so there's a polarization happening there. The only people who buy that are already very right wing, but a lot of people it's turning off. Historically, anti-Semitism was primarily associated, though not exclusively, with conservatives in the far right. But you write in the book about how from the late 1960s onwards, the concept of the so-called new anti-Semitism, which posits the radical left as the most dangerous propagators of anti-Jewish sentiment and treats criticism of Israel as really uh, virtually synonymous with hatred of Jewish people, that became increasingly central to how the lobby came to defend Israel from criticism, both at home and abroad. Um, can you talk about that shift and, and how it was facilitated by Israel's gradual drift to the right, having been founded by a movement that, for all its exclusionary racism, had deep roots in the tradition of European socialism? Yeah, uh, of course I can talk about it. I mean, it's a topic that I I try to avoid over-engaging with because it's so toxic and I think it crowds out other issues and it decenters Palestinians and Palestinian liberation. Um, but we can't avoid it because it, 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 it intersects with that struggle. And, you know, but another reason is I, I, I try to avoid it is I think it's it's often discussed quite insensitively, even irresponsibly. So I do want to preface this by saying, you know, as you've already mentioned, you know, real anti-Semitism is on the rise and we it's very dangerous to Jewish communities and we can't be complacent about that. But as you say, there is also a phenomenon we need to engage with and critique, which is that as supporters of Israel find they are increasingly unable to win a moral argument to persuade people of the righteousness of an apartheid system, they turn to other tactics. Um, and, one, and one is um, the propagation of this idea of a new anti-Semitism. And I found Brian Klug's writing on this, you know, really useful. So um, he explains that, as you mentioned, the the new anti-Semitism discourse essentially differs from the, you know, the traditional and long-standing understanding of what anti-Semitism is, which is hostility to Jews as Jews. And it says that actually there's no longer the Jewish people who are the victim of anti-Semitism, or it's them as well, but there's this new form in which Israel is as the representative of the Jewish people or as the collective Jew can be as a state a victim of anti-Semitism. And 
the perpetrators are no longer predominantly the right wing, but the left wing and to an extent, kind of Muslim communities as well. And so the left and, and Muslim is sort of known as the Red-Green Alliance. And, you know, it's important to say that it is possible to criticise Israel in, in a way that's anti-Semitic if we treat it as uniquely oppressive because it defines it as a Jewish state or something like this, or in the, in the sense that it, that is stemming from its Judaism rather than its ethnic exclusionary nature. But to restate what, what should be obvious, most criticism of Israel opposition to Zionism is not anti-Semitic, so that's the that's the basic concept of new anti-Semitism, and what what you what we see happen to it and its trajectory is initially it is codified in a document, a working definition produced by the European what was called the European Union Monitoring Centre, which is now known as the Fundamental Rights Agency, and it gains some traction. I think this is around two thousand and five. Is never formally adopted by the EU, however, it later returns as the IHRA definition, so International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, and has in that form steadily uh, kind of gained um, traction, though not without, of course, a lot of controversy because of some of the examples of potential anti-Semitism that that definition cites. In particular, the idea that calling Israel a racist endeavour is an example of anti-Semitism. And I think one of the things I mentioned in my book is that what's so perverse about this idea that calling out Israel's blatant racism is itself a form of racism is that in July 2018, when the Parliamentary Labour Party was pushing the, the, the Corbyn leadership to adopt this definition in full, Israel was at the very same time passing the nation state law, which is a, a patently racist piece of legislation, which says Israel is the nation state of the Jews and the Jews alone. Okay, so any Palestinian is a second-class citizen. Which already existed de facto, but is now further codified this apartheid system to which Palestinians are subjected. So, so essentially, it is a way of silencing Palestinians from naming the fact of their racial oppression, and by perversely equating it with anti-Jewish racism, which is very rightly highly stigmatized. And I think it's a very, very dangerous blurring of the distinction, which harms not only Palestinians but also Jewish people because it positions them effectively as a human shield for Israeli apartheid and it creates a zero-sum game where one is sort of uh, unable to oppose both Israeli apartheid or anti-Semitism. It, it, it suggests that you can only do either and that's really a tragedy for any sort of genuine anti-racist hopes of universal solidarity. Going back to the way in which you define the term Zionist movement, so you, you describe the Zionist movement as a social movement from above. Now, that might sound like a bit of a contradiction in terms, since we usually think of social movements, even if they influence and partially incorporate elite elements at times, as being fundamentally grassroots driven. So what does it mean then to describe the Zionist movement in this way as a social movement from above? Yeah, so I won't um, bang on about theory for too long, but essentially I found the work of Lawrence Cox and Alf Nilsson really useful. They have a book called We Make Our Own History, which is basically a Marxist theory of social movements. And they critique the mainstream social movement scholarship, which is out there, which, as you say, positions social movements usually as these grassroots, often left-wing and usually counter-hegemonic and relatively benign actors. But Cox and Nilsson point out that dominant groups in society have also constitute social movements, also engage in collective action, even when it is to defend or extend dominant or hegemonic power systems. And and what they say is that, you know, the way things are 
in society, whether it's political systems, financial systems, you know, they're constructed over time and that social change happens as a result of conflict and contestation between movements from above and below. And that's relevant to to Israel first and foremost because the state of Israel itself was created uh, in, in no small part through the act- activism of the Zionist movement. So again, mainstream social movement studies, which sees social movements as happening kind of within and against states, has a kind of has a blind spot there. Um, so the social movement comes before the state in that case, in the case of Israel. And today, of course, or since the creation of Israel, the Zionist movement has continued to exist and continues to enhance Israeli state power in critical ways. And it's a, it's a social movement with a state at its heart. And many of the pre-state institutions that were part of the Zionist movement before the establishment of the State of Israel, those were then incorporated into the state, right? They, I think incorporated in is, is, is maybe not quite the right term, but they, there were laws which codified the way they would share power with the Israeli government. So you've got the um, World Zionist Organization Jewish Agency Status Law in 1952. Um, it sets out the division of labor in which, you know, the responsibilities that would rest with the government and which would be the remit of the Zionist movement. So, for example, yeah, the Jewish National Fund is primarily concerned with, you know, colonizing the land of of Palestine. So it um, performs that role for and with the Israeli state and alongside it. But it is essentially a quango, so quasi-autonomous non-governmental organization, but with this special relationship to the Israeli state. And I talk about it as Zionist movement as a social movement from above because it is defending this dominant and oppressive system. And I talk about the Palestinian liberation movement and the solidarity movement around it, or support of it, and the BDS movement as a social movement from, from below because it is contesting that hegemonic and oppressive system of apartheid. And the contestation between the two is the thing I'm interested in. I think that is the thing that is creating all the activism we see today. But there are important differences between the two. So like as you mentioned, the Zionist movement does have non-elite actors and grassroots elements, but it also has superior access to state power, superior access to resources, whereas the BDS movement is predominantly a sort of very decentralised and grassroots movement, a quintessential social movement from below. Going back to the, the pre-state era, do, do you think it would make sense to describe the Zionist movement at, at that time as being a social movement from above? Because obviously it, it did have much more popular support at that time. Clearly Israel didn't exist at that point, so it can't really be conceived of as a project primarily of, of a state. So do you think that the characterization of Zionism has, has, um, has changed over time in that sense? That's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure I have a, can offer a definitive answer, but yeah, it definitely has changed in its nature. So, you know, in the early years of the Zionist movement, you know, every Zionist family would have a, a Jewish National Fund blue box in their house where they would raise funds for the movement, and, and they did have more of a sort of populist element, but but that's not to say, like, it, it doesn't still have that, especially within Israel today, the kind of level to which the citizenship mobilises behind its state is is a very interesting phenomenon. But yeah, I think that there is probably a case to be made for saying that it was, although it always contained the oppressive potential which we have seen played out for, you know, 75 years now, it was, you know, the Zionist movement did arise as a response to European anti-Semitism and, and anti-Semitism in Russia and, and other places. So there was an element in which it kind of emerged from oppression. So it is a complicated question and one I'm not going to attempt to answer, to be honest, but I think today is very unquestionably acting in defence of a, 
of a dominant and oppressive regime. One of the phenomena that you trace in the book is is that of the, the so-called new public diplomacy, uh, a practice which really came to prominence in the early 2000s. And you write that while traditional diplomacy involves the cultivation of relationships between official representatives of two states, public diplomacy targets the general public in foreign societies. In turn, new public diplomacy differs in part because it increasingly involves non-state actors in this targeting of foreign publics. What's the history of the new public diplomacy? Um, how is it adopted by Israel and the state supporters? And why is it a way of operating that, in your view, especially suits Israel's objectives vis-a-vis the, the Palestinians and, and their supporters? Yeah, so I think that um, <clears throat> new public diplomacy, in terms of uh, it being that term being used to describe this this thinking in in literature that's out there does emerge around the turn of the millennium in response to broadly a kind of growing cynicism towards state power and so certain scholars of diplomacy who are interested in helping governments to promote their image argue that rather than official government spokespeople making the case for a certain government um that utilising civil society organisations or NGOs who are sympathetic to or supportive of that nation state is going to be more effective because civil society actors are usually perceived as democratic um, and as benign, essentially. And I discussed the work of two of the leading scholars in that field, uh, Jan Melissa and Sean Rayordan, who talk about how diplomats need to sort of piggyback on non-governmental actors and how the the bread and butter of diplomacy these days is at the grassroots of civil society. And they also importantly recognise that a degree of covertness around the links between governments and the civil society actors who are acting as PR sort of supporters is necessary because you would damage the kind of unique selling point of those civil society actors if they were if it was known how Sometimes they are working quite closely with governments. And so I mentioned that that actually as a practice, this isn't new to Israel. And I think it's important not to exceptionalise Israel in this regard, that apartheid South Africa did a lot of the same stuff. But but the Israeli government and the Zionist movement have certainly absorbed those ideas. So Jan Melissa's work is cited in Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, kind of strategy documents. And a very influential Zionist think tank called the Reit Institute, which is based in Tel Aviv, has also kind of made it clear that it thinks civil society actors should sort of lead the way. And, uh, you know, Israeli ministers have, have quoted verbatim from Reit's reports and have said themselves, uh, so Gilad Adan, who used to be the uh, Minister for Strategic Affairs, which no longer exists, but for several years was in charge of leading the fight against BDS for Israel, you know, he said explicitly that, you know, it's not very good for the government of Israel to be at the forefront of the battle when when we're engaging with, you know, trade unions or universities or civil society realms. But but the government's role is to provide kind of discrete support from behind the scenes while other actors, you know, take the lead in defending Israel. And so what you see, and I trace in, in chapter, I think, two of the book, is that the Israeli government steps up its efforts to kind of institutionalised cooperation with the Zionist movement and Zionist civil society actors, which, as we've just discussed, are not new because, you know, the Zionist movement predates the state itself, but you see more initiatives emerging. So the Global Coalition for Israel is one, um, which is still meeting every few years and is a very top-level attempt to 
kind of loosely coordinate pro-Israel actors according to the government's strategy. And then more importantly, perhaps we have an initiative called, uh, well, it was originally called Solomon Sling, Keller Shlomo, but it's since been renamed Concert. And that is essentially like a mediating body which allows the Israeli government to um, provide funding indirectly to pro-Israel groups. So particularly in the in the US where legislation means you might have to register as a foreign so quote unquote foreign agent if you were receiving funding directly, that allows them to bypass that legislation and be leading the battle against BDS, but receiving support from the state in that sense. But as I said, it's you know, it's not something that's unique to Israel, but certainly I put all the evidence in the book that shows that Israel is is doing this and Gilad Aden, who I mentioned, he even um he spoke in the Israeli Knesset, the parliament, to say that we, you know, his ministry, when it existed, should be exempt from freedom of information legislation because many of the ministry's activities around the world were not of the ministry but were formed through other actors, and those actors would not want their connection to the state exposed. So it's quite, you know, undeniable this is happening. Yes, and of course, the, the state would also not like those connections to, to be seen, but Indeed. presumably he's not going to talk about that. Um, you mentioned that the the case of apartheid South Africa is a bit of a forerunner for what Israel has been been doing. C- can you talk a bit about the South African case and particularly the role of Eshel uh, Rudy, who was uh, Secretary of South Africa's Department of Information for much of the 1970s, and, and a bit more about the parallels that you see between the two states in their efforts to undermine international uh, criticism? Yeah, so obviously the parallel between South African apartheid and Israeli apartheid is often drawn, but in the book I talk about Another parallel, which is, yeah, how South African apartheid government sought to combat this international boycott, which was quite similar to the BDS movement today, although it was more focused on perhaps sports tournaments, because that was a a bigger part of South Africa's international image. There are some remarkable continuities there, such as the role of Barclays Banks, the British government's repression of local councils, activism in, in solidarity. And of course, the colonial solidarity, which the British government showed to South Africa for many years and in today's shows for Israel. But yeah, in terms of what happened in South Africa, I mean, you mentioned Ashel Rudy, he was the Minister of Information, and he essentially masterminded a campaign to respond to the boycott that was targeted in South Africa, because like Israel, it was seen as a, a national security threat, essentially. Um, and so they engaged in a, a range of strategies to promote South African apartheid, everything from, you know, um, sponsoring sports events to producing TV shows or uh, taking MPs on all expenses paid trips like Israel does today. And also cynically exploiting racial optics in terms of sort of hiring black PR operatives to be at the front of their activities. And so that was carried out by a range of uh, professional PR firms South African businessmen who were friendly with with the government, but also a network of non-governmental organisations. And and, and many of them were covertly funded by the apartheid government in South Africa. And they also manufactured civil society groups where groups did not exist who could perform the role of allies. They wanted to have that parallel diplomatic track in civil society because it was always going to be more effective. And I quote uh, Rudy saying this in the book, he recognised what new public diplomacy scholars recognise now that, you know, when people are already cynical about your government's legitimacy, that you're not going to be a very effective spokesperson if you work for the government. And so you need um, third parties to make that PR case for you. Um, So some of the the pro-South Africa apartheid groups that were active in Britain uh, included the International Freedom Foundation, the Club of Ten, 
the South Africa Foundation, and I recommend Ron Nixon's book, Selling Apartheid, for anyone who's interested in that that parallel. And yeah, essentially, Israel's anti-BDS campaign echoes this to a large extent. So I talk about how, you know, the Israeli embassy is itself on record as having um, helped to set up around 40 pro-Israel groups, at least, uh, local kind of friend, friends of Israel groups in Britain, uh, and to to an extent, therefore, they should you know be referred to as manufactured civil society or astroturfed groups rather than grassroots groups because they're not spontaneously emerging from civil society but being being sort of manufactured in this top down way. So yeah, I think the parallel with South Africa is a really important one because it's it's not unique to Israel, and I think it sort of helps us to fend off accusations of conspiracy theory because it does sound. Uh, you know, it is somewhat kind of deceitful and manipulative of public opinion, but it's that's what apartheid states do wherever they are from. And I suppose that fostering of these organisations which appear independent, that a lot of that, the sort of the effect of that is not necessarily particularly to persuade or change anyone's mind, but just to make it appear as if there is just greater debate and contestation and to sort of demobilise people that way to make people think, uh, you know, rather like the efforts of the energy um, majors to try and foster uh, counter arguments around climate change, that it just makes it seem as if the Israel-Palestine issue is um, more debatable than it might otherwise appear to be. Yeah, indeed. And I think it tells us something that, you know, the embassy has had to work quite hard with support from We Believe in Israel and um, Stephen Jaff at the board um, to kind of foster the emergence of these groups because they haven't been emerging spontaneously because you know, the pro-Israel movement did used to be able to bring large numbers of people out to pro-Israel demonstrations, and that just doesn't happen anymore, and it hasn't for a long time. So, you know, that's the context in which these groups have been manufactured, because they are, they see, you know, the Palestinian cause bring 100,000 people onto the streets of London alone um, in solidarity with Palestinians, and they want to, yeah, as you say, kind of like cultivate an image that at least there is some support for there is some support for Israel and civil society, but it's, um, you know, vanishingly small. And as we talked about, increasingly the preserve of right wing evangelical Christian and, and, and kind of often hardcore Islamophobic extremists. Um, yeah. If we look then a little bit at the recent history of Israel's efforts to defend its ongoing process of, of dispossessing the Palestinians. So you describe how the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement and Israel's efforts to counter it emerged in a moment of what you describe as a profound legitimacy crisis for Israel, brought on by decades of violence, occupation and apartheid, uh, which crystallised around the turn of the millennium and provoked in 2005 an official propaganda effort called Brand Israel. Can you describe the nature of that legitimacy crisis that Israel was facing in the early 2000s? how the Brand Israel project, in your view, failed to prop up the country's image and, and the shift towards more aggressive tactics that Israel started to pursue uh, against the country's critics around this time? Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a very slow, decades-long process. I mean, you alluded to the you know early decades of Israel's existence, where it was seen as a, um, a socialist haven. And even when Israel occupied the occupied territories in 1967, it wasn't that there was an immediate, you know, hemorrhaging of support. You know, it took further wars, further bombing campaigns, and but slowly, you know, support for Israel was seeping away. Certainly, to a large extent, on the left, um, even as kind of support on the right increased. 
1982 was quite a significant moment when Israel invades Lebanon. But but yeah, I I, I pinpoint kind of uh, the turn of the millennium because the Oslo peace process, which was a sham peace process from the start, uh, collapses, and it becomes very clear that Palestinians have gained nothing from the process. In fact, it's often pointed out that settlement construction during those negotiations occurred at a much higher rate than previously. Uh, what Israel gained from it was a degree of normalization during those years in terms of opening up uh, new economic markets. And we're seeing those, um, it's kind of relationships with Arab states today is still actually blossoming. But but the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, the, the dispossession, home demolitions, etc., etc., continued. And so the second intifada erupts very much the kind of, um, you know, weeping sore of, of of a dream deferred because people did have some hope at that time. And, and, and the Intifada is brutally repressed by Israel. And what we see, you know, from that point onwards is um, increasingly the polls showing further steady decline in Israel's image. So it is recognised that it is a militaristic and aggressive nation. And that's in particularly a generational demographic difference. So people are under 35 are much more likely to side with the Palestinians, and that includes in the Jewish communities. So, and what's happening at that point is there is a, a kind of increasing recognition that the two-state solution, which had been the consensus that had been what the community, you know, international community said was going to happen, is increasingly distant, is increasingly unrealistic, and that the one-state reality that we currently have is um, an apartheid reality. And simultaneously, Palestinian resistance kind of enters like a new phase where the popular committees are engaging in weekly and nonviolent demonstrations. And the BDS call emerges in 2005 as a call, a call to international civil society to show solidarity on the basis that governments have failed to deliver justice. And, and what's happened in Israel at the same time is the 1990s, which saw like a post-Zionist turn, that that kind of phenomenon at the same time has been really crushed by what Ilan Pape calls neo-Zionism, which is this more dogmatic and racist and belligerent brand of Zionism, and that that holds sway in Israel today. We, you know, with its most far-right government in history, and we see. And I suppose it's led to a lot of people like Ilan Pape leaving the country as well. Indeed, yeah. So, so that was a partly a product of the, the triumph of neo-Zionism, right? And rather than, I suppose, accepting that its image crisis is a result of the apartheid system imposed on Palestinians, it sort of doubles down and digs its heels in and says, you know, we need a propaganda campaign, a Hasbara campaign to um, make people understand that Israel is, you know, LGBT friendly and feminist and high tech. And um, so they launched this uh, campaign called Brand Israel in 2005 to move, uh, quote unquote, beyond the conflict in, in the public imaginary. Um, and I think it, you know, it becomes clear within a few years that that is not working, because at the same time they're continuing to bombard the Gaza Strip and ethnically cleanse Palestinians from their from their homes. And so, yes, from around like 2010, the turn towards more aggressive tactics picks up. So you have the blacklisting of BDS activists. You have the beginning of the use of sort of NSO spyware against. Uh, Palestinian activists, as well as it being exported to other human rights abusing governments, and a range of other like much more repressive tactics, including 
lawfare and attempts to outlaw BDS because they're starting to take that movement seriously when at first I think they hoped they could sort of ignore it and it wouldn't become a force to be reckoned with but by around 2010 it really it cannot it can no longer be ignored and it needs to be fought in earnest. Israel's propaganda efforts are usually discussed somewhat separately from economic developments in the country but you describe how Israel's shift from broadly social democratic welfareist sort of policies how that shift from from that towards the standard neoliberal playbook and especially the embrace of the outsourcing revolution and and the increasing role of private companies in taking on the responsibilities of the state proved to be very efficacious for Israel's adoption of the techniques of the new public diplomacy. Um, Can you explain how, as you put it in the book, the Israeli government's responses to its image crisis and to the threat of delegitimization, Palestine solidarity and the global BDS movement have been visibly shaped by neoliberalism? Yeah, so I mean, I don't want to overemphasize it because obviously, as we've discussed, you know, the support of Zionists, actors and civil society has always been critical, you know, from the early apparatus to, to, to now. But yeah, in the neoliberal era, as Israel, like many, many sort of states and from the late 70s, starts liberalising its economy and spouting, you know, neoliberal rhetoric about the uh, inefficient public sector and the bloated public sector and the superior uh, agility and efficiency of, of private actors. I think that just chimes very well with new public diplomacy strategies. And so the perennial debate in Israel about why is our Hasbro, you know, ineffective, as I said, they're not interested in the answer because, you know, the reality is we're imposing an apartheid state and and enacting state violence on an indigenous people. They're interested in uh, more technical solutions like, ah, we need to outsource it and this will be more effective for the reasons that I already mentioned about, you know, um, civil society actors' perception as sort of inherently democratic and benign right and so then it certainly you know there is an extent to which it certainly is effective to be having these two parallel diplomatic tracks so obviously the Israeli government has not stopped pursuing its interest in informal diplomatic channels but it's quite effective to have that echoed then from from civil society supporters of Israel as well and uh, you know I think I mentioned in the in the book and there's a quote from David Ben-Goyen who recognised that, uh, you know, in the, in the 50s, that, the, that the, the role of the Zionist movement in enhancing Israeli state power was critical. And then a very similar quote from uh, a woman called Nitsana Dashan Leitner, who works for an Israeli lawfare organisation called Shirat Tadin, expressing that same idea that as a private actor, they do not have to be essentially kind of this, you know, there's no red tape for us narrative. Um, so they're not held to the same standards of, transparency and um, and they also have you know superior access to to state actors often so i don't want to overstate the case but it's a simultaneous development which fits very neatly with the economic ideology which which comes to prominence in israel as well yes and i I suppose if non-state actors go too far then the israeli government can say well it's nothing to do with us exactly it yields a kind of a deniability alongside the sort of flexibility yeah You've mentioned the term lawfare there, and in the book you describe this this technique that Israel has adopted to counter the BDS movement. And you define lawfare as as a wide range of legal means to achieve repressive political goals. Can you talk a bit about what this has meant in, in practice regarding Israel's targeting of BDS activism, and also why the courts are regarded by Israel and its supporters to be such favourable terrain to struggle on? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I want to say about lawfare is, again, it's not unique to Israel. I think one of its precedents is the war on terror and what happens with 
the erosion of international law during that US-led campaign. But in terms of Israel, there's really two essential strategies of, of lawfare. The one is prosecuting supporters of BDS and, and, and bringing litigation against them. And I call that a form of offensive lawfare. And the other, you know, we could call defensive lawfare, which in essence is about trying to outlaw BDS to prevent BDS happening. And it's it's useful for a number of reasons, I suppose. First and foremost, as I've already said, Israel advocates cannot win the argument on the terrain of moral persuasion. It's really, really hard to convince people that apartheid is a justified system in what Israel is, is doing on a daily basis to Palestinians is in any way justifiable because it's not. But secondly, it's also a terrain on which the Zionist movement as a social movement from above has certain advantages, including like superior resources, which are often useful for navigating you know, the legal arena and superior access to state power, which if you want to get a new law passed, you really need to have. And I'm not saying that, the, you know, Norfolk has been an out-and-out success. It hasn't. But I think it's important to recognise that even when an attempt to prosecute a BDS activist fails, it's still succeeding in a sense that it ties up BDS activists in a court case, which stops them from doing BDS activism and sends a very intimidating message which can chill activism or BDS activism in, in a wider sector. Because also, I mean, these things can be financially ruinous, of course. And even, even, I mean, you you give the case of legal cases brought against local councils, and even for even for them, it's it's a real threat. Yeah, yeah. So that's the um, Jewish Human Rights Watch case brought against Leicester City Council and a couple of councils in Wales, Swansea and and, and Gwynedd, who passed motions in around two thousand and fourteen when Israel was engaging in Operation Protective Edge and killed over two thousand people. They passed motions supporting elements of boycott divestment sanctions campaign and then were taken to court by this organisation calling itself Jewish Human Rights Watch. And yeah, I think they were warned that if they lost the case, you know, they could have extremely high punitive costs, but they decided to contest it and actually their right to pass such motions was upheld. And Jewish Human Rights Watch case, which centred on the Equality Act and claimed that there was something discriminatory and anti-Semitic about passing a BDS motion to hold companies complicit in Israeli apartheid to account, was thrown out by the judge. And there's been, you know, a very long running court case around this where, you know, the High Court made one ruling and the Court of Appeal made another and eventually the Supreme Court again upheld the right to boycott of local councils. But nonetheless, as I said, like, I think it has still had a chilling effect on council BDS activism because of the the media headlines that the pro-Israel actors were able to generate saying, you know, councils being sued for BDS. So it's complicated to draw conclusions about whether something is successful or not from the actual legal outcome because there's a wider sort of effect. You have a section of the book on the so-called Arab boycott, which was initiated in 1945 when the states of the Arab League began boycotting products made in the Jewish Yishuv in, in Palestine before the founding of the state. The boycott was then, as you described, tightened following the defeat of the Arab armies in the 1948 war in which Israel was established as, as a state. And you suggest that in spite of major differences between the Arab boycott and the modern boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign, that nonetheless some useful lessons can be drawn. Can you talk then a little bit about the Arab boycott, uh, how it differed from BDS and, and what those lessons are in your view? Yeah, so the reason I do talk a little bit about the Arab boycott in the book is because it's an interesting precedent in terms of how Zionist movement fought boycotts of Israel. And there's 
some considerable continuities there with how it is combating BDS today. But I also do want to emphasise the major differences between the quote-unquote Arab boycott and BDS today, one of which is just, you know, merely the geography. So it was led by Arab League states and didn't really kind of get beyond that, whereas obviously BDS is very vibrant and active in many other states today, US, the UK, and major sort of Western allies of Israel. Fundamentally, also BDS, as I've said, is a is a decentralised civil society movement, which Palestinian civil society has called for, whereas the Arab League boycott was a sort of um, state-led initiative by Arab states, and it was sort of top-down and enforced sometimes, you know, punitively. And another important difference is that sometimes the Arab League boycott was enforced in anti-Semitic ways, so people were targeted for their Jewish identities rather than, as opposed to BDS, which is explicitly rejecting of all racial discrimination and targets, you know, Israeli institutions and not individuals. And it's a, it's a rights-based movement grounded in international law. And finally, the Arab League boycott was quite focused on the economy and, and, and restricting Israeli trade. And it did have some impacts at, at, at times. But what we see with BDS is that it's broadened out to also include a cultural element and an academic element, which actually arguably more important and more likely to have an impact on Israel today in terms of sort of removing legitimacy and creating having this educational element as well. So those are the differences between the Arab boycott and BDS today. But the similarities in terms of the way the Israeli government and the Zionist movement react are quite interesting too. So in both cases, they're obviously faced with this dilemma of how do we respond to the boycott and defeat the kind of or undermine the real impact it's having without inadvertently multiplying that impact by talking up the, the, the extent to which Israel is becoming a pariah state. So in other words, you don't want to cause too much of a fuss about the boycott having an impact because you could be doing the boycott's job for it. So in both cases, the solution is you know to pursue this quite discreet activism across state private networks through loose committees involving like a range of, of Zionist groups and the Israeli embassy. So in the 1950s, I did some archival research into um, a body called the Special Purpose Committee, which is later replaced in the 70s by something called the ABC Committee, the Anti-Boycott Coordinating Committee, and bears a, a really strong resemblance to a committee today called, well, it was originally called the Fair Play Campaign Group and is today called the Israel Advocacy Forum. It's not a very transparent group, but it meets you know regularly and involves a, a wide range of pro-Israel actors in responding to BDS in this, in this country. And another thing that I found very interesting when I was looking at the archival documents is it shows the kind of power relationships between the Israeli embassy and Israel advocacy groups. So consistently when those groups have not towed the line the Israeli embassy has been willing to sort of in effect discipline those those groups or publicly humiliate them in the case of J Street and and in America and Yakad in this country those who are more liberal and so in a sense that there's this kind of like discipline going on within the Zionist movement across those state private networks there is a hierarchy of power and the Israeli embassy wants to have a coordinating role in sort of saying, you know, which companies should be lobbied to resist the boycott and which should not, and to have that overall strategic kind of oversight. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. 
You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.